Um, the reading uh, is from Exodus 19, verses 3 to 7. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, <coughs> and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my word, my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders and the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Exodus 20 verses 1 to 17. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath all that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, put punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord, your God. The Lord will not acquit those, anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honour your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not cover the neighbour's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. This is the word of the Lord. Well, now, what are we going to make of the Ten Commandments as our lectionary brings us on to this point in the story of God's interaction with the people of God as we journey through the Hebrew Bible uh, in the run up to the start of Advent? For many people, for many Christians, being religious is understood 
as being someone who follows a set of divinely given rules. You know, do this, don't do that. And for some, this is very attractive. It's why they have embraced a life of religious devotion. There is a, a certainty, a security in being told how to live, what to do, what not to do. Many go to church to hear the Bible expounded in ways that will guide their decision-making, with the pastor dictating everything from what a person might do in their relationships to their financial decisions. But for others, this kind of controlling religious conviction is experienced as highly oppressive. And many of us here, I'm sure, will have left churches precisely because they were too focused around the imposition of rules on the congregation. Even Ned Flanders, the fundamentalist Christian from the cartoon The Simpsons, struggled with this, crying out to God on one memorable occasion, Lord, I've done everything the Bible says, even the stuff that contradicts the other stuff. And whilst I can see the attraction of regarding the Bible as a book of rules to follow, with church as the place to go to be told how to live, in the end, I have to be honest and say that this doesn't work for me. Firstly, my biblical studies have shown me that the Bible is not actually a book of rules. As Ned Flanders discovered, to try and make it such creates internal tensions and contradictions that cannot be resolved without a fundamental rethink of what scripture is. So these days, I tend to think of the Bible, not as a book of rules to follow, but as a series of thought experiments about the nature of God. I think of it as a record of God's people wrestling with God, trying to understand what it means to be the people of God in the midst of a complex, violent and sinful world. But secondly, I reject the approach to the Bible as a book of rules because my pastoral experience shows me that to treat it as such creates a context for control and coercion and abuse. We must be careful, I know, not to point out the speck in our neighbor's eye whilst ignoring the plank in our own. And none of us are immune from the temptations of power. But it does seem to me that if you have a highly controlling understanding of both the role of scripture and the nature of God, this then creates a context where that control is more easily mirrored in church life. For example, I don't know if you saw um, the Jesus Army were back in the news again this week as their compensation scheme opened for the victims of sexual, physical and emotional abuse within their structures and congregations. This organisation, the Jesus Army, 
which began in a perfectly normal Northamptonshire Baptist church in the 1970s, came to embody a culture of absolute power entrusted to a small group of unaccountable male leaders, combined with a theology of female subjugation. And the 800-page report into the Jesus Army, published a couple of years ago, specifically said that their theology of gender placed both women and children at greater risk of abuse, and that all five male leaders of the organisation must, quote, take responsibility for their inaction. The author of the report also said there was a culture of blaming victims and reinstating disgraced leaders. And what I've just outlined about the Jesus Army, you could say very similar things about multiple other congregations that have been and church structures that have been in the news over the last few years. And to be clear, my point here is not so much to point to the Jesus Army and say how awful they were, as it is to make the point that if this could happen, in a rural Baptist church in Northamptonshire. Frankly, it could happen anywhere. Wherever controlling theology colludes with unaccountable power, there is a very high risk of abuse being part of the outcome. And this is why our theology matters, alongside our careful attention to the practicalities of safeguarding and accountability. This is why I remain deeply suspicious of those theologies that regard the Bible as a book of rules given by God, imposed by the church to be obeyed by the people. All of which brings us to our reading for today. The story of the institution of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. The beginning of the law of God. This passage is one of those thought experiments that I was talking about. It's a story that explores something of the nature of God and how humans might live in the light of that revelation. But in order to understand the Ten Commandments from the Hebrew Bible, we need to understand a little bit of the context into which they came into being. Um, We've got, we've got an afternoon full of stuff this afternoon. I do hope many of you are going to join us at Neesden Temple at four o'clock. That's a fantastic visit. A smaller number, and I'm afraid the tickets for this have all been taken, a smaller number of us will be popping over to the British Museum at half past one for a community preview of their new hieroglyphs exhibition. And alongside star exhibits such as mummies and, and the Rosetta Stone, we will also see more mundane objects such as records of taxation rules. And several of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs were known as lawgivers. Unfortunately, so far, no complete ancient Egyptian law code has yet been found. But we do have records from the same period of laws uh, recorded in Mesopotamia. And this includes the famous Hammurabi law code from ancient Babylon. This is a collection of 282 laws which were recorded, chiseled 
onto a huge, large black rock, or stele as, as they're called. And this was done in the reign of the Babylonian king Hammurabi, which is why it's known as the Hammurabi Law Code. He lived nearly 1,800 years before the time of Jesus. This uh, stele, the Hammurabi Law Code stele, is on display in the Louvre in Paris. Um, and whilst uh, the Hammurabi Code contains the earliest known example of an accused person being considered innocent until proven guilty, a good thing, it also contains horrific punishments, such as the removal of a guilty person's tongue, hands, breasts, eye or ear. And the significant thing for our understanding of the Ten Commandments is that the Hammurabi Law Code and other ancient law codes like it that we know must have existed in Egypt and other places around that time. All of those are part of the context for the story of the giving of the Israelite law code, which gives us a Jewish version of a law code, one which is based on those that would have been around for many centuries in neighbouring cultures. But we also need to understand the difference between when the stories of the Hebrew Bible are set and when they were actually written. The stories of the Exodus and the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai and the giving of the law to Moses, those stories are set at a time in the far history actually a time roughly comparable, maybe slightly later, with um, King Hammurabi himself. But the book that tells us these stories, the book of Exodus, was written and edited much, much later. It was written and edited during and after the Israelite captivity in Babylon. So some five to 700 years before the time of Jesus. The stories it's telling are set a thousand years before that, but those stories are written five to 700 years before the time of Jesus. This means that what we have in the story of the 10 commandments is a product of the exile of Israel in Babylon. It is the Jewish take on the Babylonian law codes which had been around by that point for over a thousand years, of which the Hammurabi stele is one of our earlier known examples. And just as we've seen over the last few weeks as we've been going through Genesis and Exodus, with the stories of creation and flood, the Israelites in exile in you know, the seventh to eighth century BC, encountered in exile in Babylon the Babylonian worldview and all the mythologies and concepts that upheld it. And they then created their own reshaping of these stories to reflect their particular and unique understanding of the nature of God. So, for example, the Babylonian story of a creation destined for violence and created in violence became a Jewish story of a world created good and destined for peace with human sin, disrupting that ideal. Similarly, the Babylonian flood story of a world at the whim and mercy of capricious gods became a Jewish story of God hanging his war bow in the sky and promising never again to threaten the world with destruction. And so it is with the story of the giving of the law, as the Babylonian law codes of 
overkill and scapegoating become the Jewish principles of proportionality and respect for one's neighbor. But before we drill too deeply into the text of the Ten Commandments, and I do promise we're getting there, we just need to spend a few moments with the first part of our reading for this morning. It may sound obvious to say this, but chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. And what I mean by this is that the covenant precedes the commandments. The covenant of chapter 19 precedes the commandments of chapter 20. Chapter 19's promise from God to Israel that they shall be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation called by God as a treasured possession to be a blessing for the whole earth which is the Lord's. All of that is the essential precursor to the giving of the Ten Commandments a chapter later. What this means is that the law is not a condition to God's faithfulness. Rather, the law is a response to God's faithfulness. I'll say a bit more about what I mean by this. God's love for humans is not predicated on their obedience to arbitrary laws. Rather, right human behavior comes into being as a response to God's love. And this really matters because it strikes right at the heart of the question with which I began. That of how and in what way religious belief might affect, control and regulate human behaviour. The Babylonian laws were arbitrary. They were violent, they were vengeful, they were ruthless because they were the outworking of a Babylonian belief in gods who were arbitrary, violent, vengeful and ruthless. However, the Jewish concept of God was of a God who created humans for love, who turns away from violence, and who takes action to release people from enslavement. And so the laws which arose from their belief in that God were substantively different from those of the Babylonians. The Jewish laws were a response to God's covenant, they were the signs and symbols of God's faithfulness. <clears throat> so, um, I'm just going to say, Ian, if you're still online, you might want to mute yourself because I think we can hear you. Uh, so, if that's okay. Um, thinking about the last few hundred years of um, European anti-Semitism as an example of why this matters. The European Reformation caricature of the Jewish people as legalistic lies behind so much of the horrific story of anti-Semitism in Europe over the last few hundred years. Now, of course, this is a profound misunderstanding of the nature of the Jewish relationship with God. But Martin Luther's equating of the legalism of the Catholic Church in his time with the legalism of Judaism and his similar equating of St Paul's language of grace with his own rejection of Catholicism has done immeasurable damage to the lives of Jewish people from his time to the present day. In 1543, Martin Luther wrote a text called On Jews and Their Lives. In that text, Luther said that their synagogues should be burned down, their religious books should be destroyed, and even that, quote, we are not at fault in slaying them. He says worse stuff too, but I'm not prepared to read it out in church. 
You see, Martin Luther believed that the Jewish God was a God of law. And this belief, this misrepresentation of Judaism's relationship with its covenant with God, directly contributed to the context that 400 years after Martin Luther became the horrors of the Nazi Holocaust. But it doesn't stop there because that then in turn created the impetus for Zionism, which brings us to our church trip to Palestine next month, as we will be visiting in solidarity with those living now under occupation. And you can trace all that back to Luther's understanding of the Jewish God as a God of law and of Judaism as a legalism religion. I told you theology matters. Who we think God is and what we think humans should do in response to that has shaped world history and it continues to shape our culture and our communities to this day. But the revelation of the book of Exodus, a text of course itself shaped in a time of exile and occupation in Babylon, is that God is a God of covenant faithfulness, not of legalistic demands, and that God's people are then called to live in the light of that covenant. Which brings us at last, you'll be glad to know, to the Ten Commandments, the Jewish take on the Hammurabi law code. And one of the striking things about the Ten Commandments is the almost complete lack of prescribed punishments. There are no injunctions here to cut off body parts if you don't obey, like you get in the Hammurabi Code, or to lock people up. If you want those kinds of laws, you have to read on into places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the ancient Jewish authors added to the Ten Commandments a whole raft of legal minutiae to try and cover every imaginable eventuality. Actually, as an aside, do you know my favourite random law in the Hebrew Bible? Some of you have heard me on this before. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 to 12. Let me read it to you. If men get into a fight with one another and the wife of one intervenes to rescue her husband from the grip of his opponent by reaching out and seizing his genitals, you shall cut off her hands, show her no pity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> I've always wondered why this was included. Was it happening so often that they needed a law for it? Or possibly did it only happen once? In which case, why did they need to make a law about it? My personal theory is that this did happen once and that the man grabbed had as his day job being a legal scribe. And once he'd recovered and returned to work, he thought to himself, right, if that ever happens again, I'm having her hand. And that's why that random law is tucked there in the middle of Deuteronomy. Anyway, I can't prove it. Deuteronomy 25 is not the Ten Commandments, which have a very different feel to them compared to the other later legal material we get in the Hebrew Bible. The Ten Commandments are foundational for the Jewish understanding of how they should live in response to God's calling of them to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood set aside from the world for the benefit of the world. If they are to be God's people, then their way of being human must reflect the revealed nature of God. And so the Ten Commandments provide a framework for living within the covenant of God. And so they begin, Commandments 1 and 2, keep God at the centre of your lives and your community. 
Don't worship other gods, no matter how attractive they may be. The consequences of displacing God are severe because the worshipping of idols is merely a cipher for the worshipping of self. And selfishness is destructive of community and family life in ways that can take generations to heal. People sometimes think that the, uh, the statement about children being punished for their parents' sinfulness to the third and fourth generation is a statement about the harshness of God. But anyone who has spent time studying family systems therapy, or possibly just observing the patterns of dysfunctional abuse within their own family, will know that this is simply a statement of fact. As Philip, Philip Larkin nearly put it, they muck you up, your mum and dad. Commandments three to four. Don't take God for granted and keep a day of rest because you need it and so does the earth. I firmly believe that we need to recover the intent behind the principle of Sabbath if we are to learn to live well upon the earth and live peacefully with ourselves and our neighbours. If you've not read it, I commend Nicholas Slee's wonderful book, Sabbath, The Hidden Heartbeat of Our Lives, to your reading list. Commandment five, honour your parents because family matters. Perhaps it mattered even more in the ancient world than it does in our time, with survival then dependent almost entirely on familial structures and care for the elderly, the responsibility of the family. Commandments six to nine. Now we get to the specific thou shalt not commands, which are often caricatured as the epitome of legalized religion. I've often heard people dismiss Christianity and its parent religion of Judaism as being just one long list of thou shalt nots. But, you know, these thou shalt nots in the Ten Commandments, I kind of want to get on board with. I don't know about you, murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness. I think the world would be a much better place if people didn't do these things. The tragedy, of course, is that religious types have then added many more thou shalt nots, a project that has been going on from the highly contextualized law codes of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right the way down to current evangelical grandstanding on the issue of human sexuality. Thou shalt not do whatever it is that I don't think you should do, says almost every religious community that has ever existed. It's not the Ten Commandments, though, is it? We've always been very keen to add more commands, turning what should be a guide to lives lived in response to God's covenant and an invitation to relate to others in love and faithfulness back into a law code with punishments and impositions. We write again the Hammurabi law code in response to the insight that the ancient Jews had that that's not the way to live before God. The Ten Commandments are not laws to cover every eventuality. They are an invitation for people to reflect on the nature of God, to recover their own identity in God as God's people, and to then start living in ways that embody that identity. And so our relationship with God is renewed as God reaches out to us in faithfulness and love. And our relationship with one another is renewed as we learn to live in peace and harmony. Which brings me to the last command, commandment 10. This is the one about not coveting your neighbour's house, wife and possessions. If God is faithful, 
if God is faithful, if God is the God of covenant faithfulness, if that is true, then our relationships with one another should also be marked by good faith. If God is the God who provides, then we do not need to desire that which is not ours to have. As René Girard has shown, desire of what is not ours to own lies at the heart of all the systems of scapegoating that dominate our societal and communal relationships. And the 10th commandment, don't covet that which is not yours. And so to close, a short reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbour as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. We'll just uh, spend a moment or so reflecting on that and then I'll invite the uh, panel to join us for a short discussion. So I'm joined today by Jean-Marc and Evelyn Petterschmidt and Liz. And from time to time, we have a, a panel discussion. It's brewing in the days of the dark days of lockdown, but I think it was found useful. So we ask questions, pose thoughts and think about what we've just heard. So we just had a, a sermon on a very well-known passage and um, I think we all know the Ten Commandments, but it's, it's always dangerous, isn't it, when we look at a familiar passage, not to learn something new. But I think we did learn some new things today and new ways of looking at it. And I wonder, perhaps, Liz, if you could give us some thoughts. Um, I think that I uh, very much what resonated with me was the what Simon was saying initially about the security that you find in the uh, in kind of very clear-cut having rules to follow and because of my kind of background of coming from a, um, a, a sort of uh, an upbringing where that was very much uh, the thing that was taught to me um, I find that I still find that quite attractive and I struggle to get away from that that's sort of my default position 
But um, I did, I found a lot of hope in the idea of, of, of flipping it on its head and of, of the law being response rather than um, being something that I had to do in order to earn, uh, earn God's love and affection, which I guess is more my natural uh, mindset. Um, but the other thing that really resonated with me was therefore the responsibility that we kind of have, the, the fact that theology really matters and um, not only what I think, but also how I then put that across can really affect people and the abuse that that can cause. And I think we probably all have experienced that. And, um, and I think that I'm just very aware that therefore how I talk about things, how I talk about God can have a, an impact on people. Um, but yeah, I kind of was left, it's one of those things where um, often I, um, I feel that I, I want so much to believe this, <laughs> but that sometimes I find it hard because my, that natural kind of, well, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, and this is what it means, just kicks in in my brain. Um, so I think it's kind of a journey and I'm guessing I'm always gonna be on that journey of, of trying to see this differently all the time. Um, it, it, it always reminds me, and I've said this, I'm sure before, of, of the kind of matrix thing where it's like, um, would you take, if, if you knew what you know now, would, would you have taken the pill? Anyone who hasn't watched the matrix will have no idea what I'm talking about, but um, it, it's that kind of understanding that things can be different and that that can be hopeful and that there's another way of looking at things. Thank you. Yeah, I think that, that battle is, is one, I think we're all on that journey in, in many ways. And I think the battle between legalism on the one side, but at the same time thinking, but these commands are there and they are good commands. Simon reminded us they are good commandments. And if we did but live by them, the world would be a better place. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, Evelyn. Yes, so... I come from a different background because I'm from a Lutheran origin and um, I found it very interesting the thing, the relationship with the, the Hammurabi code and the idea that there is no punishment in these Ten Commandments and I was wondering, so what's the, the punishment that was in people's mind and it was hell of course and you, and I think one of the things that Luther did is just freeing people from this uh, punishment if they didn't follow the Ten Commandments. And uh, also, 30 years ago, we saw the Kislovsky Decalogue film series on, on the Ten Commandments, which I very much recommend because it was such a striking experience to show that things are not black or white and that it's often difficult to follow this or that uh, command. Um, yeah, yes, were some ideas. Thank you, uh, Jean-Marc. And the last thing I wanted to add is the difficulty I find between knowing what to follow and what not to follow, especially with the, this is a frame, which is very useful and we like to follow it. And then we have this whole little set of rules, which some of them we should not follow because they're not um, applicable in our context, but also in the, if, if you follow the spirit and not the, the, the minutiae of the law that 
have been edicted by men. But I think in the Bible, it's very difficult to know which is which. It's good we discussed this at home and uh, I think Evelyn covered most of the subject. So that's, that's good. Can I just add an additional plug for this Kislovsky? Christoph Kislovsky is the, is the filmmaker and there are 10 one hour short films on each, each commandment. And this fact that actually things can be not simple and for humans to judge it's particularly not simple. Sometimes, you know, you have issues of forgiveness, uh, repentance, moral dilemmas, ethical issues that come and cloud what seems very simple tick the box uh, commandments. And then the, the other thing is just uh, relating to, to the news. One cannot think about Iran and the theocratic uh, regime there with <coughs> man-interpreted views as to what religious and behavior should be and particularly applied to women and ruthlessly enforced with, uh, with violence. And we, we see that this is just not tenable. It's just not the way to go. And, and you know, our thoughts are with the women and the people of Iran who are yearning for freedom. Thank you. I'm going to plug those films too. Can I just clarify that you said there were 10 one hour films on each commandment. No. I think it's 10 yeah. over the whole lot. Yeah. It's not one 100 hour. hours long, is it? No, as I remember. It's, it's excellent. I, th I think a, a lot of the, the, the conflict you're, you're, you're talking about and, and how to know and understand. I, I, I think we, we can leave this where Simon left it in those words of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the, great, the, the greatest commandment is to love God and the second greatest is to love your neighbour as yourself. And I think if we bear those things in mind, it becomes quite obvious what we should do and what we shouldn't do. You know, we might, if, even if we think about the law, you know, the law here, there are all sorts of laws and regulations. Uh, last week we had the spring clean. Thank you to everyone who joined in. I hope you'll agree the sanctuary is looking a bit cleaner. I had forgotten about the, the, the hose pipe bag. So I merrily got the jet washer, jet washer out. I gave it to Tim so that he, he, he could take it out and jet wash the steps and make them look lovely. Uh, little knowing I was endangering him because it's against the law at the moment. But I think generally, you know, we might not know all the laws of, of our law. We might not know all the, all the, the, the laws and the sub-laws and that in the scriptures. But generally, love God and love your neighbour are encapsulated in that. And, and even in that law, we can see that, well, the hosepipe bang has been introduced so that we don't run out of water because we haven't had enough rain. And, a, and although it's very nice that we have clean, sparkly steps, it's probably a bit better that people have enough water to drink and enough water to wash and cook with rather than us having clean steps. You know, the, the principle follows. And so I, I think those words of Jesus Christ are underpin all that we've heard about the commandments and, and all that we seek to do in, in, in understanding and following them, I would say. Uh, does anyone else have any 
Maybe are we good? Just one very quick thing that I was thinking and wasn't sure whether to say, but the, the other struggle that I always have is that I think we have to be really careful not to come across as, I don't know, smug, we've got the answers, um, you know, this is the right way to go. When we're thinking in relation to, you know, other, other faiths and thinking about the trip that we're going on this afternoon. And I, I just think that it, it can be really difficult for us to know how to balance that because when we're talking about different law codes and this law code and where our history comes from. And I just, I haven't got an answer to that, but I, I'm just acutely aware that sometimes it can sound like we're not respecting other um, faiths. And I, yeah, and I want to respect that while still sticking to and understanding mine better. Mm. Does that make sense? <laughs> that is difficult. I'd agree. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Dear Lord, thank you for your work to us this morning, for being able to hear and understand more fully your commandments. We want to obey them, not as a set of blind mechanical laws, but as a deep commitment to lead a better life as true followers of Christ. You told us, you shall have no other God before me. In a world of temptation, obsessed by money and materialism, where the veneration of mammon inflicts misery to our society and destroys our planet, we pray that we, <coughs> individually and collectively, may not lose ourselves, but keep you as our supreme guide to lead all our actions and that we may live by your example. You told us, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Dear Lord, we are grateful for this time together, for the rest provided on Sundays and for your creation in which we marvel, especially in these beautiful autumnal colors. May we set that time apart to reflect, praise, and serve. We pray for this church that brings us together. Help us to strengthen the links that bind us so that through you, we may serve our community. You told us Honor your father and mother. We thank you, Lord, for our families. We pray for the healing of relationships where they are broken, for making new bonds and deepening existing ones. May we welcome others as if they were family. Dear Lord, we pray for our loved ones, those who are sick, suffering, or distressed. Be with them and comfort them. You told us, you shall not kill, not steal, not covet. Dear Lord, in these terrible times, we pray for countries at war. We pray for Ukraine in particular, 
and for so many other countries throughout the world, where people suffer because of the violence and abusive power of a few, coveting land and resources. In the midst of this horror, and faced with risks of further escalation, we pray for the affected population, for the relief workers, and for all those in position of leadership. Grant them comfort, strength, and wisdom. Dear Lord, we pray for the end of these conflicts. We pray for peace. You told us, you shall not bear false witness. Dear Lord, in a world overtaken by lies, fake news, and manipulation, we pray for honesty. So simple, so often ignored. Help us at all times to discern and convey the truth. We pray that our leaders are at all times guided by these principles. And finally, as Jesus said, we pray that the love of God and of our neighbor will guide us again this coming week in a spirit of empathy and service. We ask for all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. Amen. Amen.